Corey Bendix. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Evangelism. Really glad to see you. Um, excited for tonight. And congratulations for those of you who were baptized. Just such a big deal. It's an honor for us to be able to celebrate that with you. Um, recently, I found out that the fastest growing church in all the world is in the most radical nation, namely Iran. It was a, an amazing documentary that was done last year, um, and in this documentary, Sheep Among Wolves, what was discovered is that it is a, a rapidly reproducing disciple-making movement. They own no buildings, no central leadership, predominantly led by women, and it's marked by dreams and visions and signs and wonders there's an amazing move of God going on in Iran. And when they were asked uh, to describe the church in the West, and you know, when most of the time when you have people who are talking about the church in the West, you know, you can sense the attacking. But this group gave such an articulate response, it really it, it sparked my soul in what they said. This is what, what they said. It's like the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. It's like the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. What he, was, he would, went on to say is marked by convenience, comfort, distraction, and if you add that to some of the findings that George Barna is, is, is beginning to gather about local churches post-COVID, what they're realizing is some fascinating information. That local churches are finding that 30% of their church is more locked in and passionate about the mission than ever before. 30% are attending but still working through a level of uncertainty. And 30% have left that church. And what they found is that 30% have left that church and reacclimated themselves to another church. And what has guided their reacclimation is not theology but ideology. The shifting sands of ideology becomes the foundation that 30% of people are using to guide what, where they go next. That as long as they line up with my belief systems, that is the church that I'm going to participate in. Not the steel rails of theology. And so as we consider this series, what we've been wanting to do is, again, as a parent, you, know, you understand what it's like to have a child especially underneath the age of one, and you have to do everything known to man to get them to sleep, right? I mean, you purchase all types of sound, like, you know, a variation, like multiple, uh, like, noise makers, and if they like light, a little bit of light in the corner. I mean, you're doing everything that you can to create an environment to get them to fall asleep. And what this quote is saying is that is that Satan is working overtime to create an environment to keep the church asleep. And what we've been doing in this series 
come alive is we've been trying to sound an alarm. A spirit-empowered alarm that awakens us. It awakens us not to just some idle mission, but ultimately to the hope of a resurrected Jesus that is leading us in this day and age that, that is now beckoning us to come alive. And so we've been going through, and if you haven't gotten a chance to, to hear these messages, I encourage you, go back and re-listen to them. They're fantastic. And they're wide-ranging when it comes to, to the different topics with the one similar attribute that the Holy Spirit of God is active within our church to bring us to life. And so what I want to title this is very simple. Loosed from the lullaby. How the, res- how the resurrection calls us to come alive. If you could just turn to Luke chapter 24. Um, man, Pastor Jim Critcher, you know, in most of his sermons, you know, he is going to end up talking about Elijah or Elisha. Um, I mean, 90% chance. I, most of the time, if you give me an opportunity to preach, I'm going to go to Luke chapter 24. This is my text. But I, I got to warn you that I read this and I was, I was like I was reading it for the first time. And I was... Uh, I really f- felt like this is a timely word for us as a people. And so um, if you would, let's just go to verse 13. This is the road to Emmaus. Two individuals who we're going to find are sleepwalking. They're sleepwalking. They are coming out of disappointment. They have a version of Jesus that hasn't been fulfilled in their perspective and they are not happy. And so they are on a road to Emmaus. And we'll talk about the importance of all of that in just a second. But before we get to the application and, the, and just the explanation, let's read this thing. If you haven't gotten a chance to get your reading in, we're going to get in it right now. Okay, so we're going to go in verses 13 to 35. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes, circle this verse, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is This that you have with one another as you walk and are sad. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which has happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Circle this verse. But we had hoped. We had hoped. That it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
And certain of those who were with him, who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. And then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them, and now it came to pass As he sat at the table, circle this verse. As he sat at the table with them, that he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, circle this verse, 31. I know you're circling a lot. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Your version may say recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Amen. This is uh, the only time that this story is mentioned in the entire Bible. This is Luke's magnum opus, if you will. It's unique to him. And it is the first time that we find Jesus interacting with his followers. We find off, find out very quickly in the story that these are disciples those that had probably sold everything that they had and for a year and a half at least walked with Jesus, slept in the same environment as him, heard his voice, heard his stories, ate with him. These are two individuals who knew the master. And right off in verse 16, we find a conundrum. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The way I've always read this verse, always, and I don't know what happened in my reading with this, but I always just assumed that this was Jesus' doing. You know, he's wanting to do some type, he's wanting to teach a lesson, and so he just keeps their eyes from opening and recognizing them. But is that what the text says? It doesn't. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why would their eyes be kept from seeing the one that they had been around for a year and a half? Is it possible for disciples to have eyes that are blocked from seeing Jesus who is right next to them? Is it possible? Is that even theologically accurate? And I think the text is going to tell us that it is. And we find the answer of the conundrum in verse 21. And before I even get into verse 21, just, I love, I love the fact that these two eyes, these two individuals, it's, 
We don't know if it's a man or woman, two men, doesn't matter. But they have, they, they have a problem where their eyes are shut. And the only thing that can awaken them is a resurrected Jesus. They're in a lullaby. They're stuck with almost like, and we're going to find out that, that it's almost like a satanic lullaby that's keeping them from seeing the king. It's almost like you hear the whisper, just stay asleep. Stay asleep. Just keep going. Just keep walking. Stay sad. And you have verse 21. It says this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is the hand being tipped. We're told that the reason that their eyes are shut, we can connect the two. One is the reason, one is the solution. That the reason that they can't see Jesus, the reason that they are in this, this, this sleepwalking moment is because they had an ideology of who Jesus should be. Preconceived notion. Something that they had been taught, learned. They were steeped in it. That, that they were indoctrinated, that, that, that God works a certain way. We're going to find out what that means. But they were convinced that Jesus' kingdom must accommodate their human desires and inclinations. The reason that they couldn't see is because Jesus wasn't pull, pulling his end of the bargain. He wasn't, he, he wasn't leading the end of the story to the point in which they thought that he would. And we find this, this word, redeem. An important word, but the question is, when is the first time this idea of redeem, when does it get mentioned in the Bible? And just as a note too, when it comes to this whole thing of the crucifixion, they saw the crucifixion not as his greatest strength, namely Jesus, but the personification of his weakness. That the reason that they were sad in their heart, the reason that they had disconnected themselves from the rest of the disciples, the reason that they were beginning to have a hardened heart about the future of their own life and the church is because the crucifixion ruined this idea and ideal that Jesus was going to be a Messiah, a Messiah who redeems. Now, this word redeem is really important because the first time we see it, it's in Exodus chapter 6. Verses five and seven, two, just a, a story that would have been rooted in the hearts of young uh, Jewish boys. I think we've got it in the, up on screen. This is what it says. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will free you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. You see, what they were assuming is that God would do the very same thing in first century as he did in Exodus chapter 6, that God was going to redeem. He was going to redeem by taking Pharaoh and the Egyptians and destroying them, killing them slowly. And as you are thinking about these two disciples, you can't help but, but put the two together. They think that Rome is Egypt. Caesar is Pharaoh. What's God going to do? God's going to pull in Exodus 6. I know he is. That's the rooted expectation of all of, not just these two, but ultimately 
all of the disciples have this, have this preconceived notion that, that Jesus is going to act in a certain way. And it's always going to lead to the destruction of one people, and it's going to be to the, to the raising and rising of another group of people, namely themselves. I mean, you see this in Matthew chapter 16 with Peter. And what does Peter do when he, when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Well, you're the, the Messiah. And God's like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. I mean, you weren't given that by yourself. You're not that smart. God tipped his hand. He gave it to you, man. This is amazing. And then what Jesus does, he goes on to, to talk a little bit about how he was going to be murdered. He was, he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And what does Peter say? May it never be, Lord. And he rebukes Jesus. Why? Because Peter didn't sign up for a Messiah that died. In his mind and in the minds of all of these, they had an ideology that Jesus was going to fit his mold. And there's no way that Jesus is not going to come through because this is what he had been banking his whole life on. Certainly Jesus is not going to, to, to do anything but go into Rome or he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to start destroying Romans and he's going to, now he's going to raise up this new kingdom and Peter's going to be at the right hand. That is what he assumed was going to happen. And what is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. It was a satanic lullaby. That when we begin to create ideologies that now insert Jesus and then ultimately create tribes where God is on my side and he's ultimately against another side, that is a satanic lullaby. When we begin creating tribes, divisions, your side, my side, and we assume that God is on my side, we have a presupposition that God is on my side. And, and, and believe me, I am so thankful that Jesus has so much patience for these two disciples in the process of understanding who Jesus is and going through a discovery that included really bad ideologies. And guess what? Jesus was patient with them. He wasn't, he wasn't frustrated. He wasn't angry. He walked with them even when they were going the wrong direction. But the question is, why are they going to Emmaus? Why Emmaus? And if I would have told you Emmaus and you were first century Jews, then all of you would, your eyes would open up and you'd kind of go back and go, oh, I get what he's saying. I got it. But I say Emmaus and you look at me with blank stares. And that's Okay. So here's what Emmaus is. Here's the purpose. Here is, is, is almost like the smoking gun of the story. It's as if, if, if I were to say Pearl Harbor, Gettysburg, Bull Run, Normandy, or Antietam, that's all I would have to say. Because what you would now put together in your own mind is they are battles fought by a nation with a certain background or context with a certain result that, that now was, was at the end. And in 166 BC, there was a family called the, the Hammer family, uh, translated into Hebrew as the Maccabees. And they were, instead of Rome in 166, there was, there was this group called the Assyrians, and they were not nice people. 
And this group of, of, uh, of Jews gathered together around the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. And this is what we find in 1 Maccabees 4. Take a look at this. Now, the Syrian general Gorgias took 5,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry to attack the Jewish camp and attack without warning. But Judas heard about it, and he and his warriors moved out to attack the king's forces in Emmaus. Circle that. Actually, you can't, but just, there it is. At daybreak, Judas appeared in the plain with about 3,000 men. Now, just, it's about a two to one, right? Like, this is not looking good. As they saw the camp of the Gentiles strong and fortified with cavalry all around it, Judas said to those who were with him, this is his 300 speech, this is like, this is his rallying cry. Next slide. Do not fear their numbers or be afraid when they charge. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his forces pursued them. So now let us cry out to heaven to see whether God will favor us and remember his covenant with our ancestors and crush their heathen army before us today, then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. This is where they're going. They're going to the haven of, of all of Jewish history. They're going to Emmaus. They're going to Emmaus because this, they are still remembering the hope of Rome being crushed it's about enemies. That these individuals had a, this idea that God is against enemies. And those enemies are my enemies. And yet, what we find in this fascinating story is that they completely forget the teachings of Jesus about enemies. Real quick, Luke 7, this is what it says. They were, they were missing this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Lo love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you down at the bottom. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. The whole reality of this story is that they forgot that they were God's enemy. That's the story of what Jesus is now leading them to. He's going to lead them to where he's going to talk to them about himself all throughout the book, New Testament, at the beginning of the Old Testament, all the way through. And what is the story of the Old Testament? It's that we're God's enemies. And you know what? God's going to do another exodus, but he's not going to be a bigger, better Moses. He's going to be the Passover lamb. That's... That's who he came to be, is not to create division of, of good and bad. Those who, and again, let, let me just be honest, and I'm going to run through a list, but we live in a day of ideologies. Can, can we agree with that? And what do those ideologies do? Those ideologies are dividing people. They're creating this, this, these tribes Tribes that now oppose one another. And it's amazing how we can be in a beautiful, diverse church that, that brings people together around the gospel, and yet we find our tribes. We find the tribes that we, that, that we, are, that we can be ourselves with, that see life through our eyes. And yet I wonder if that is a satanic lullaby. 
that is causing the church to be divided. It's causing this church to be divided. And yet, everything that God wants to do in and through this church of winning the city, it requires a church that now crushes the division and comes together and is held tightly by what? By the resurrected king. Here's a few. American nationalism, Jesus. God has a special plan for America. Inclusive Jesus. God's plan for the LGBTQ initiative. CRT Jesus. God's plan to restore power by any means. Vaccination Jesus. Anti-vax Jesus. Mass Jesus. Anti-mass Jesus. Prosperity Jesus. And then don't even, let's start talking about Republican Jesus, Democrat. Like, just, I can, that's just the very beginning of the list. And what we have is we have these ideologies that instantly cause division and we don't know if we can be honest with one another. Well, what is that? That is satanic lullabies that are lulling us to sleep, pulling us away from community, pulling us away from experiencing the power of Jesus. The satanic lullaby of our day creates an environment where we are convinced that Jesus' kingdom must accommodate our human desires and inclinations. What Luke is doing is Luke is inviting us to see ourselves through these two disciples. What preloaded assumptions do we have as I walk along Jesus, yet am prevented from seeing Jesus like every other disciple did? And the, the story comes crashing. It, it culminates in verse 30. I'll just... fly through this. Just hold tight. This is the best part. Verse 30, when he was at the table, he took the bread. (laughs) Now just remember, he is the guest. The guest becomes the host, right? He comes in. He's not, like you remember, he's still just hanging out, walking along. They don't know who he is. He has explained himself in the Old Testament. They still don't get him. They still don't get them. I mean, the hold of a satanic lullaby that is rooted in ideologies is so powerful, it prevents, it, it must, the only thing that can crack it and destroy it is what we see in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. I mean, just, that here these two individuals are coming to the very place where sin entered into the world, a meal, in Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world as a meal. Jesus ratifies his covenant at a meal. As soon as the bread is broken, it said that their eyes were opened. That's also Genesis 3, where their eyes, that when they ate of the piece of fruit, their eyes were opened and they saw themselves, shame, guilt. Now, as a result of the, the resurrected Jesus who opens up this bread and he breaks it and he gives it, their eyes are open to see beyond the ideologies that they assumed that Jesus would fulfill. And now they see him. Their eyes are opened, not to see their shame, but to see who he is. The bread and the cup 
What do they resemble? They resemble I am God's enemy and yet he still loves me and now dines with me. I'm, I'm his enemy. I'm his enemy. I mean, have you actually thought about what the implications of that? If you, actually, if you haven't considered the fact that you are God's enemy, you were. I wonder if you've really encountered the beautiful news of the gospel because that reality should now drive you to a place of compassion and a heart that is quickened in the same way that these two disciples had. They had an experience with the risen Jesus because they understood they were God's enemy. And guess what? All, this is all they did. They came to the table and all they did is we, they sat and received. The table is a place of humility. You don't bring anything to the table. Thank God it's not that we don't come to a desk. We don't come to a desk. We come to a table. We don't come to a desk where you earn. We come to a table where you receive. And they sat and they humbly took whatever they had and they put it to the side. Any bags that they had, they put it to the side. Anything that they had when it comes to, 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 to dirt, grime, their past, their failures, they just said, you know what? I'm humbling myself, and they sat down, and they received. It's in the receiving that their eyes, their eyes were opened. And what, what I love about what happens next is that union with God creates unity amongst Christians. This is really important. You got it at, at the very bottom of this text. What's fascinating about this thing is that they had union with Jesus Christ, but the union that they received from Christ, now it said their eyes, that they arose. That word arose is the same word that is described when it comes to Jesus rising from the grave. That arose, it literally in the Greek means to be awakened. To be awakened. Like the lullaby, the satanic lullaby that caused them to miss Jesus because of their own ideologies was now broken as a result of what, the, what Jesus Christ had done. Union with Christ creates now a unity among us. It said that they rose and they ran back seven miles. I love this, man. That stinking track stars, they were going slow at the beginning and then they had energy. Like we got to get ourselves back. The place that they had run from, their greatest place of pain was the place that now they were willing and ready to go back to. They run back to Jerusalem, and, and it creates this moment of unity. They're, they're around one another. And guess what verse 36 says? As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Do you realize that when we allow for the power of Jesus Christ to awaken us from our own assumptions about who he is supposed to be, and we're now rooted in, in Christ-centered community, do you realize he shows up? Like we're talking about the power of the Spirit of God. You want the power of the Spirit of God? Allow for Jesus to open up your eyes and run to community. And in that comes his own presence. I'll end with this. This is Luke goes on. So he's written the book of Luke. And then it's one big scroll and it continues to the book of Acts. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 4. I love this. One of my favorite texts. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. This is our text. 
you, you, want, you want to know what happens when a church comes alive? It's this. They had one mind. How can they have everything in common? They're from different backgrounds. How? Because of Jesus Christ and what he's done to awaken them from themselves, see that they're enemies of God, and now the power and the beauty of Jesus binds them together, and now they're willing to exhaust their resources for one another. Let me end with this. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. You can put that up. Christ's people must have bold, unflinching, lion-like hearts, loving Christ first and his truth next, and Christ and his truth beyond all the world. This is what happens when we are broken from the lullaby, the satanic lullaby that just keeps, begs us to just keep sleeping. And I don't know about you, but it's, I, I just have a, I just feel like God's, his presence and his power wants to continue to awaken us. I don't know where, where you are, what parts of your soul are just asleep. Asleep. I think all of us, I, this week, I, there was a few spaces where I'm like, God, you got to wake me up. you got to wake me up. And I think this is a progressive process for all of us, is constantly coming back to the bread, coming back to the sacrifice of Jesus and asking him, Awaken my eyes so I can see you. So to, to conclude this series, we want to take the cup together. I mean, what a better way to end this series and this, especially this message, where everything drives, it's rooted, it, it is now, it finds its identity and its power and its purpose in one thing, in the embodiment of the sacrifice of Jesus that reminds us we are, we were his enemies. And yet, like these two who had a hard heart and they were fools, yet they eat with Jesus. He's inviting you, whether you have a hard heart and you feel like you're foolish, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. This is, this is our hope. This is our fuel. This is what is going to now speak as a declaration to our community of what a church looks like alive. It's not just a church that has a lot of action and a lot of, a lot of motion, but it's a church that is rooted in Jesus and rooted in one another. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and he gave it as a new covenant in his blood. Church, Lord, I thank you. Imbue your presence. View this bread with your presence. Lord, we thank you. As we receive this, we're receiving the broken body of Jesus. Sacrifice of his life for his enemies, for me. So I can now no longer be divided as I walk in, as I walk in this world. Church, let's take and eat the broken body of Jesus Christ. Then he took his, his cup It's a sign of forgiveness, new covenant cut in his blood. What this does is it not only washes sins, past, present, and future, it empowers you to be able to forgive sins in others, past, present, and future. This is the only hope that ideologies die. That we see Jesus for who he is is because of this, this cup. 
Lord, imbue this cup with your presence. Fill us afresh with your life, with your life, with your forgiveness, that we may be those who give life and give forgiveness. Church, let's take and drink. Lord, we honor you. We love you. We thank you that the resurrection beckons us come alive. In your name we pray. Amen.